1: Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Robert McChesney, author of Digital Disconnect, How Capitalism is Turning the Internet Against Democracy. It builds on the celebrated political economist's previous work on media, government, and capitalism. Bob, thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, my pleasure, Dave.
1: So in, in Digital Disconnect, it's interesting, as, as I've read your works over, over the years, in that each one seems to build on the previous one. You know, When we Digital Disconnect, I can see your previous work. I can see parts of Death and Life and, and, and all, everything else that you've written. Um, how did you come about with this book, and, and where does this book, uh, what is this book's sort of next step in, in the evolution of what it is that uh, your work takes you?
0: You know, I've been thinking about writing a book on the internet for 20 years. It's, uh, I've, you know, it's been, I've been teaching it. I think anyone who works in communication, uh, as I do, and I have done now for three decades as a scholar, since I started graduate school, you know, it, at a certain point in the 1990s, it became evident that the digital revolution, the internet was really changing a lot, if not everything, and that it was a dramatic change, not just for media and communication, but for society. And as someone who does political economy of media, who works in these areas, I was wrestling with it and have been wrestling with the internet and the digital revolution uh, ever since then. And so I think it's been something I've known in the back of my mind. I, I, was, I wanted to write a book on it, but I never felt comfortable uh, until quite recently with writing a book. I wrote chapters and periodic articles sort of assessing aspects of, of the internet but it seemed that the, the system was too in flux. Uh, it was too unclear uh, where it was going. To write more than general pieces, uh, you, it, was, it wasn't was the time for anything that you could be remotely considered definitive. And I think that began to change in the last decade, especially in the last five years. And then finally I wrote a piece two years ago, in monthly review with John Bellamy Foster, and uh, on the state of the Internet. And I, I can't even remember the title of it, but it was something about, you know, Oh, capitalism's killing the internet or something like that. And the the piece struck a chord. When we were writing it, it occurred to me that we were far enough along now, enough and crystallized, that we had a pretty good sense of where the internet was at and the digital revolution and where it was going and what the really crucial issues were going forward in a way we hadn't had in the past. And that meant to me that it was time to write that book. Uh, and that that's why I did it then. Now, as you pointed out. Uh, one of my major concerns as a scholar has been news media and journalism. The last book I wrote with John Nichols that came out in 2010 was called The Death and Life of American Journalism. And a lot of the issues I take up there show up here. And I think that's just probably unusual about my book on the Internet compared to about anything else that's written on the subject. Almost all the other books on the Internet, some of which are very good, they sort of try to t- take a larger view of it. Um, really have very weak or limited treatment of the inter- of journalism or of, of the political economy of media, how the resources get allocated to it, and have very little to say of value on the subject. Uh, because of where I'm coming from, my interest, you know, I think that's the one one thing I could inject uh, that draws from my past research uh, where I can speak with greater authority, uh, that's really not talked about by anyone else.
1: When when talking about media online traditional whatever, and and, uh, start talking about the idea, is is capitalism good for it, it it makes some people twitch, because to them, capitalism and democracy are synonyms, which, in fact, they're not. Um, How do you address that in, in this book? You've got the chapter, does capitalism equal democracy? But what do you say to people who do equate the two?
0: Well, I, first of all, we have this really odd thing. If we, were living, if we were looking at an ancient society or, say, the Soviet Union before the fall of communism, you know, we would look at how the economy was structured, who did the work and who benefited by it, how decisions were made and how they related to the economy. We have a starting point for all analysis. And when we were assessing weaknesses in the Roman Empire, ancient Greece or some Indonesian community... Uh, not to mention Soviet Union or some country we're in bad terms with, that would be the way any credible analysis would begin. You'd start by looking at how the economy is structured, who benefits by it, who doesn't benefit by it, what the rhetoric is that ex- in, and the ideology of the society but versus what the reality is. And what's one of the striking features of American societies, <laughs> that's strictly off limits in the United States. This is the one place you can't do this or any of our close allies. Right uh, Here we have to take, you know, we're sort of, Taught, and intellectuals do this as well, unfortunately, because we are the ones who should be the last ones to do this, and we should do the exact opposite. But here we basically are taught that there's sort of an anti to admission to be taken seriously is that capitalism can't be mentioned by name unless you're to praise it, like Milton Friedman, or it's going to be off limits. So They simply take it as a given, and that soon sort of evolves into capitalism being benevolent and capitalism being the same as democracy. And part of my book is to say that if we start with that assumption, which most analysts do, we're going to end up washing up on the rocks because that's a bogus assumption, and it leaves us really handcuffed to understand what exactly is going on because we really we're, we're mixing up two very different phenomena. They have an important relationship: capitalism, and democracy, but they're also very different. And I think the digital revolution is, in many respects, um, you know a direct challenge to the whole notion of capitalism in a lot of ways. It opens the door to, in some ways, for the very first time, to a real discussion of what an advanced post-capitalist democratic self-governing society looks like. Uh, And I put post-capitalist in there because a lot of my book is arguing that a capitalist democratic society is increasingly difficult to maintain uh, in the digital era. So, Would you say that?
1: Maybe fear is too strong of a word, but when when you say when you look at the the power structure and who holds the power when they see when they see that this digital technology makes it difficult to control and doesn't quite fit with what capitalism is or might be, do you see any kind of a fear or an apprehension among those who maybe can't control it as, and and want to
0: Of course um I think that's a very understandable fear and concern, and I think that's why in um, more authoritarian regimes, the efforts to control uh, the internet and digital communication are are central. I mean, if you go to China, they have an enormous uh, array of mechanisms for allowing the internet to exist because they need it economically, uh, but also monitoring it so it can't be a threat to the status quo. And I think that that's true in the United States as well. And part of what I do in digital disconnect is chronicled the ways that commercial and governmental interests are um, monitoring the internet, incorporating the internet into their own work, minimizing the damage the internet can possibly do to their prerogatives. Uh, yeah. It's a central political issue of our times.
1: What are some of the things that, that the powers that be do to try to to, to harness the internet for their own benefit?
0: Well, I think we're using singular powers that be in sort of a way that probably is sort of a meaningless term, unless you're more specific, because there are different powers that be uh, with different agendas. And I think in the book, one of the problems with the Internet, this really gets to be a point, is that it doesn't lend itself to the idea that there's one button that can be pushed that controls it. Uh, With broadcasting, for example, or state censorship over newspapers and some dictatorship, you pretty much go to one office, one person, one policy, one institution, and you get a handle on who's running things and how you change things if you don't like what's going on. The Internet's never been that way. There's never been one policy, one institution, one debate that sort of shapes the entire thing. It is a heterogeneous phenomenon where there's a range of different interests, a range of different fights and policies. They're all connected. And in the book, I connect them, I think. Uh, but there's not just one. And so when you ask the question of what are the powers would be doing, it depends which powers you're talking about. Uh, one chapter I have in the book deals with what I call the, the cartel. Uh, and these are the handful of telecommunication and cable companies that control internet access in the United States. And they have their own distinct agenda. They want to privatize the internet. That's their goal. And by privatizing the Internet, what they want to do is they want to close down the system so anything you access in the system, they give permission to. All websites are not created equal in their dream world. They turn it into a hepped-up version of cable television where they control the network at the bottleneck, and people who want to be on it have to pay them, both the consumers and the producers of the websites the services online. And that's their dream. Now, that's completely irrational in any sort of understanding of network economics or a free society. We ought to, I think, obviously, in my opinion, go for free without no censorship. It should be a public utility. It should be like the post office was, in effect. And the cost would come plummeting down because we wouldn't have to have barb, electronic barbed wire and passwords and all this stuff. Everyone gets it as built in and the digital divide, and, and, you know, it's a publicly paid-for resource. Uh, That's the rational way you would deal with this network technology. Instead, what we have in the United States is that the telephone and cable companies, uh, which are extraordinarily powerful, and which are companies that are built on government monopoly licenses historically, so their whole specialty, where they're good at, is buying off politicians and regulators, They have uh, used their immense power to take over the government policymaking process, and they've converted themselves into basically having a stranglehold on Internet access. You know, we really, you know, it's ironic that back in the 1990s when they were saying we need more competition in telecommunication and cable TV, we probably had about 15 major companies that provided telephone and cable services that had networks, the Baby Bells, the cable companies. General Telephone and Electric, uh, you know, there's long distance companies like Sprint and MCI, uh, probably a good 15, maybe even as many as 20. Today, we've really got about four or five or six companies that do the same amount. We've got AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and a few small fry. And they've established a cartel. Uh, They completely dominate uh, the access to cell phones and the Internet in the United States. So that in America today, because of their market power, which is not the result of, the, of winning a free market value, but basically winning corrupt political policies that they, they win in Washington and state capitals, because of their power, Americans pay much more for cell phones and for broadband, wire broadband access than people do in other nations, and we get much worse service. It's astonishing. And it's all due to corrupt policy making by these powerful lobbies. So they've got their agenda. They want to privatize the Internet, and they don't want to allow people to have any alternatives but to use them uh, for access to cell phones and the Internet. And I call them the cartel because, theoretically, uh, cell phone companies and telephone companies, AT&T Verizon, are supposed to be competing with Comcast and the cable companies. But in effect, they stopped competing. They divvied up the market. Uh, The cable companies are going to get wireline broadband and the cell phone companies are going to get all the, the wireless and smartphone applications. And that's how they divide up the market. They're not really competing with each other anymore. So they've got their agenda, and their agenda is highly destructive of an open Internet. Right there, we're in real problems. And, you know, it's interesting that when Barack Obama was running for president, and even after he was first elected, when the subject came up of healthcare, care, uh, he said, if we were starting a healthcare care system from scratch, of course we would never have private health care companies. Because obviously they do nothing of value, but they just raise prices and they use their monopoly stranglehold to gouge people. Uh, well, the same thing is true of this telecommunications cartel. It's it's really disastrous. And they only exist because of their political might, their political power. So battling them, dealing with them, ideally eliminating them because they serve no rational function, uh, is one of the issues. But it's not the only one. Even if we were to... Uh, have a, a publicly-owned, uh, ubiquitous, free broadband service, no matter what mis- unit uh, device you were using, be it a smartphone, a computer, um, a laptop, a uh, tablet computer, whatever the device is, you're automatically on broadband wireless or wired broadband without paying a penny. Uh, even if we had that, there'd still be a number of other crucial issues. That wouldn't solve the problem. You can't just push that one button. That's one of the buttons we have to push, but as I talk
1: about in the book, there are lots of other ones too. You talk about this being an irrational decision. I mean, what with the, the cartels and how they want to control is it, just not rational. But it is, however, their goals are somewhat realistic because of you know the corrupt policies. What is the what is the government incentive to allow it and to continually grant them, you know, part or all of what they want?
0: Well, you know, the this is. Sort of unfortunately a a real indication of just how corrupt our governance process is in the United States. These lobbies are so strong, they're so immense, they're so powerful. There really isn't a great threat to them, even though their control is irrational. Probably they ratchet up their lobbying because they know that their actual justification for having this power, uh, if you looked at it objectively, would be rather small. Uh, Both parties are beholden to these companies. Uh, You know, if I've done a lot of work with Free Press, the group I helped form, uh, the media activist group, the media reform group. And, you know, when you go to Washington, go to the FCC, and, and you go to Capitol Hill, and you see how media policies are debated and what the range of debate is, the first thing you notice is how it's basically a private preserve of commercial interest. So the public really almost has no role whatsoever. And there's a great line in politics, you know, you're at the table when something's being negotiated, you're what's being served. And that's what goes on in communication policy. These guys are carving up the cake between themselves. The government officials, uh, the FCC members, with some wonderful but rare exceptions, are part of the system. You know, they basically work on the FCC as staffers or as members of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And when they leave, they invariably, with only one or two exceptions, like Michael Copps, go into private industry for seven-figure incomes, being lobbyists or representatives for the very companies they theoretically uh, had been regulating. This is standard operating procedure. Uh, So as one activist told me, the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to telecommunication policy is whether AT&T overtly or covertly writes the rules
1: want to talk a little bit about the, the methodology and you talk about the the political economy of communication and how it applies uh, digitally how did how did you uh, well how did you do it how did you uh, apply PEC to uh, this digital revolution
0: oh, that's a really good question you know I have a chapter in the book sort of outlining the political economy of communication and, and the reason why the field exists is that traditional Market economics that you learn in Introduction to Economics 101, or you read in Milton Friedman's textbooks or, or books, um, they have problems to begin with, which I talk about in Chapter Two, which is with the you know that they really present a mythological understanding of how real world capitalism actually works. But even allowing, dismissing those problems of, of the mythology of free market capitalism, uh, even then, as far as it goes to media firms and the internet. Traditional market capitalist economic theory has very little application to communication uh, and to uh, network economics, to journalism. And that's what I elaborate in that, in that chapter three on the political economy of communication. I mean, this goes right back to the beginning of commercial book publishing centuries ago. It was understood that if you had a quote-unquote free market in book publishing, you would not have any books that were written. Because if someone you had a traditional free market in book publishing and I wrote a book, you could buy the book and then you would own that book. It would be your property. And if you wanted to reprint it, you'd have that right to do because you paid for the book. Well, if a lot of people did that to successful books, then the authors wouldn't get any money back from the books. They were given monopoly anti-free market privileges called copyright for a set period of time so they could recoup money to give them incentive to write. It was a frank understanding that traditional market economics based on sort of material goods and services did not apply in the world of media. And I go through all those examples of where that does not apply. So that sort of forms the basis for understanding the crucial role that government policies and subsidies play in all media, entertainment, book publishing, journalism, uh, internet, cable access telephones, they're all based on policies and subsidies. None of them are quote-unquote free market. They aren't even remotely close to uh, the traditional market we think of as you know, someone having a hot dog stand on the corner or selling shoes or manufacturing widgets. These are these are all government-created markets and government subsidized to no small extent markets. So that's sort of the framework I use for studying uh, and understanding. It. And I think it's a framework that comes up with better answers than just blindly applying uh, cliches about the genius of the free market, which I regret is far too often done with precious little evidence.
1: You uh, bring up uh, James Rorty and the idea of, of uh, the master's voice and the master's whose control, or who at least who used to be in control, and uh, this really interesting chapter on when there used to be some, you know, maybe some hope that it could be a commercial free Internet, and uh, of course it's not. Um, what were some of the steps that uh, along the ways in which the, the idea of this uh, commercial-free Internet, once existed or the idea existed and has slowly started to uh, deteriorate into what we have now?
0: Well, you know, in the book, I I start by talking about Al Gore. And for listeners who are old enough to remember the 2000 election, uh, when Al Gore was the Democratic candidate, he was ridiculed for saying, allegedly saying, that he invented the Internet. And, I mean, it was just the source of great humor. Who's this moron? Some politician actually thinks he could be smart enough to invent something as brilliant as the internet. And one of the ironies is that he never actually said he invented the internet. Uh, and But there was an element of truth to it in the sense that Al Gore was on the relevant congressional committees in the House and Senate in the 1970s and 80s that were responsible for funding the internet, bankrolling the internet and its predecessors. Uh, and in that capacity, he was arguably the leader on Capitol Hill. No one was more vociferous in demanding this and calling for this. Uh, so, the point of that exercise was that the Internet was as a testament to socialism. It's a classic public good left to private interest in the 70s and 80s and 60s. It never would have been developed. There was no commercial value in it. In 1972, the U.S. government actually approached at and the phone monopoly, and said, you want to take this thing over? You know, it's costing us a lot of money. And they studied it and said, no, we can't make a profit off of it. You guys keep it. Uh, and this history of the Internet as a public good, as a, as a testament to socialism, to government spending in the public interest, uh, as a foundation, uh, has been lost entirely uh, in our history. And I tried to resurrect that. And when we see it, when I came of age with the Internet in the late 80s and early 90s, when I think in, right as the World Wide Web came out and made it begin to be a ubiquitous medium. Uh, the idea then was it entirely non-commercial. If someone tried to do anything remotely commercial, they would be, be flamed. They'd have their, you know, email inbox or their Usenet uh, chat filled up with people yelling obscenities at them. The idea then was that our society is marinated in commercialism and advertising. There's no shortage of places to go if you want to have someone try to sell you something. The internet was going to be one place where this is going to be everyone's equal, we're all citizens, it's not about shaking people down for money, it's about dealing with each other uh, in a whole different level, uh, a non-commercial way. Uh, and that was the, the ethos, it was the formal rules uh, into the 80s, it had to be non-commercial, but even into the early 90s, it, it, it had that, uh, that culture. And that was what was so exciting and utopian about it at the time, and why it was seen so revolutionary in many respects. Now, I chronicled the book how that changes in the 90s, but I think the most important work I do in the book, and I think the most original work, isn't that discussion as much as it is looking specifically at the realm of advertising uh, and how that's changed and what that means for media and what that means for a lot about the internet. that people are just only now at the outside beginning to understand what's taking place there. When the internet came along, advertisers were absolutely freaking out. I mean, it, it would be, you know, I, and I review some of the literature, other scholars have done the same, like Joseph Turo. Uh, you know, the, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, uh, Edwin Arts, in the early 1990s, was just had, didn't know how Procter & Gamble would survive if it didn't have TV advertising, where it could force people to watch the ads and pummel them with his advertising. They were scared to death on the internet. You tried to run ads, people would just go to a different website, they wouldn't watch them, You you couldn't have a captive audience, and that was their great fear. Advertising would end, and then their whole business model of basically not having any price competition and, and gouging people and creating demand through advertising, uh, that would that would go and their profits would go. So that was their great concern. Uh, and over the course of the 90s into this decade, advertisers have struggled mightily with how, and corporations who want to use it for advertising struggle mightily, how can we possibly convert the internet into a viable advertising Mechanism. I mean, the sense that the Internet was not disposed to commercial advertising was so strong that when Google was founded, uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders, wrote an article in 1998 saying that, they, that the more successful Google would be, the less there would be any need for advertising online. People would have a non-commercial resource to answer their consumer decisions, and just a lot of BS about products wasn't going to cut it online. And that they saw Google's search mechanism as being completely un- non-commercial. Uh, to have credibility. So what's changed since then? Well, what's changed is that the the desire or need to advertise is not optional in in modern corporate or monopoly capitalism. It's mandatory expense for the largest firms to uh, use advertising as the way they compete with their competitors without engaging in price competition and maximizing their profits. And they have struggled mightily to find ways to use the Internet, and over the course of the last 15 years, we've seen a dramatic shift, which is just now crystallizing. The key development uh, was that in the 1990s, the protocol was changed slightly initially, but fundamentally to allow uh, cookies to be developed, which basically allows people to surreptitiously monitor other people online, what websites to go to, what they click on and keep records of them. Uh, and when that started, it changed everything. In the early days of the internet, the whole thing of it was that you were anonymous, you could create your own identity, no one would know who you were. Um, that was almost a problem, that you were so anonymous that, you know, you be, people could act irresponsibly. Well, over time now, that's been turned on the head. The era of anonymity is not only over, the era of privacy is over. <clears throat> These companies like Facebook and Google that are so lucrative, especially Google, they make their money basically because they know everything about you, everything about you. Uh, you know, as the line goes about the Internet, is in, if you get something for free online, you're not the customer, you're the product. And that's how Facebook is worth billions. That's why Google is worth hundreds of billions of dollars on the market, is because what they have of value is they know everything about us. Everything about us we do online is their private property, and they keep it and use it. And um, this is the, the reason why it's a value is to sell it to corporations and to governments uh, who want to know more about us, learn more about us, and primarily corporations through advertising. Now, this means that traditional notions of privacy are out the window, and this is another one of the, like with the telecom cartel, this is one of the other great policy fights we have, uh, is over privacy standards. So we have some control over what's known about us by whom uh, that we basically don't have now. We really have precious little privacy, uh, if any at all, online. So that's one of the big fights. But also, there's another factor here, and I talk about it in the book, and that's what this does for the political economy of media and media content. The deal in American media for the past 125 years, especially journalism, uh, is that advertisers would buy a medium, a newspaper, a magazine, later a radio or TV broadcast. They would pay money to the mediums to have access to the audience through a commercial and some of the proceeds of the advertisers, what they paid the, the medium, would be used to bankroll journalism or media content. So that's how advertising supported a free press. And that was one of the great claims of advertising's uh, benefits, is that it bankrolled our journalism and our free press system. Now, Media critics like me said it came at a cost. The advertising support was, was not value-free, but had tremendous uh, strings, if not ropes, attached to it. But that aside, that was the defense, now what we're seeing online, and this is the radical change people still haven't quite grasped, is that traditional relationship of advertising to support media content is eroding, if not being completely eliminated. And the reason for that is that online, with all this vast information that uh, now is being accumulated by, by Google, by Facebook, by a myriad of companies we don't even know, uh, no longer do advertisers go online and say, well, I'm going to find a website that has my desired readers and buy an ad on that website, give that website money, and then they will uh, pay for content that will attract more readers. That's gone altogether. Now what happens is you go through an ad network like the kind Microsoft has or Google has <clears throat> or AOL. And what you do is you say, I want to buy you know, 30 million uh, women, 18 to 24, who might buy an automobile in the next six months and who are divorced and live in the suburbs, or whatever, you want 30 million impressions. And they will find those 30 million impressions for you on whatever website those women go to. The website's almost irrelevant. So Best Buy or Target will get more ads on it than a media website, because people go to Best Buy and Target website. They're gonna find you, specifically. Uh, they're gonna target you. And this means that there's almost no money that goes to media content online. It's declining sharply. Ten years ago, 100% of advertising on media content journals and websites like newspapers went to the website. Today, the figure is like less than 20% and falling because the money goes through these ad networks, and the ad networks then place the ads automatically by algorithm, and it will go on a media content website sometimes, but only on those websites that are uh, visited by someone in the target demographic. I mean everyone gets their own internet now, driven by commercial interests. It's uh, it's a whole new world. It's completely different than people thought the internet would be twenty years ago. And it's being designed basically for the commercial interest of these companies.
1: And what's so interesting is there's some media companies, maybe you know, old newspapers that are trying to go online and when you look at the how they construct the ads on their websites, they're trying to still build modules as if it's, you know, somehow like a broadsheet, but now just you know, online they put the banner ad at the top, the one on the side, and now you see them you know the ad might pop up in front of you, you have to click it to you know to go off and I'm um, just you know, echoing what you were just saying and, and to build off what you were just saying, um you see these these echoes of of you know old forms of advertising still popping up into the new form, but they're not quite maybe clicking the way they thought it would.
0: No, and I think the evidence is in on this one, and, but very few people want to face up to it. This is the conclusion that John Nichols and I reached three years ago, which is that we have to accept that journalism and media content more generally, uh, artistic content culture, but especially journalism is a public good. Uh, the, me- the market is not going to produce it in sufficient quality or quantity, and if we want it and need it, and we desperately need it so we better want it, uh, it's going to require public funds to set up independent, competitive, uncensored, uh, news, uh, news media operations across the country. The market won't do it. They simply, the evidence is in, they're, they're jumping ship. You know, I think the public good nature of journalism was hidden for the last 125 years because uh, traditional old school media were able to sell advertising to cover 50 to 100% of the expenses uh, depending on the medium. So we had the illusion that this was a sort of commercially viable undertaking to do journalism. Well, now that advertising basically is abandoning the field at 100 miles an hour, uh, there aren't enough people left to pay the freight to have a popular journalism I and mean, the product is shriveling. So even fewer people want to pay the freight uh, and we can see that it is a public good and it's going to require a public policy solution or we're just going to continue to see a deterioration of journalism in our political culture as a result.
1: What do you mean by the military digital complex building off uh, playing off what you know, Eisenhower's farewell speech?
0: Well, Eisenhower in his farewell speech in 1961 made one of his most famous speeches, and he warned against uh, what he saw as the military-industrial complex. And he he had alluded to this several times throughout his career. And his concern was that uh, being the you know the supreme Allied commander in World War II, who led the D-Day invasion, a career military man, a general, obviously, but he had seen in between the 40s and the end of his presidency that. The United States had gone from a country that was largely a peaceful country that periodically built up its military for a major war and then decommissioned its military after the war into a country that was permanently at war with this huge military apparatus, a Pentagon, and a massive wartime budget that was permanently in place, and troops all over the world in hundreds of nations or dozens of nations and hundreds of bases. And he recognized the problem that America had was that there were tremendous economic interests in place. That wanted to see the military exist and see those budgets go, regardless of whether we needed it or whether it's beneficial. And there were no powerful interests in American politics who would oppose it, who would say, this is bad for us economically, so we're going to organize politically. So basically, it sailed through and was an untouchable institution. And I think what Eisenhower did in that 1961 talk is he channeled some of the most brilliant words of James Madison or Thomas Jefferson, who understood from looking at ancient Rome and ancient Greece that a society that's permanently at war, a society with a huge empire and a huge military, cannot remain a self-governing republic. Something has to give. Because military empires, uh, they require secrecy, they promote oligarchy, they promote corruption. That always comes with them. And that's antithetical to a credible self-government. So he said, we've got a real problem here. This is the problem. It's not going to go away until we address it. And it threatens the survival of the republic as a result. Uh, and I think that a lot of us have sort of gotten so used to living in a society that spends a trillion dollars a year in the military, that's been basically, manufacturing all the costs, more than the rest of the world combined, that is routinely at war, you know, the six, seven, eight places that are barely reported in the paper. We're so used to like going and mowing people down in some African country, it doesn't even read a news story anymore. We're so accustomed to this now. Uh, we take it for granted. Even people who are critical of it we sometimes lose sight of the fact that this is such a defining part of our experience in the world, even though we don't talk about it. And the military role in the internet is very much definitional. And in the book, I go through how the vast majority of the technology, including the internet itself, comes from military spending. That's where the, not entirely. I mean, the public research universities like Illinois, where I teach, uh, or Berkeley, were central to developing um, the internet in the 60s, 70s, and beyond. But uh, the military played a crucial role, and I, I chronicle that in the book. And the military has always had a close relationship with the, uh, uh, the largest commercial firms, and they have a, a symbiotic relationship, the internet firms. What's happening now, though, what I read about in the book, and I think is most disconcerting, is that the Pentagon, the military industrial complex in the United States, has decided that the, the cyberspace is now a command area. and they actually have a command center in our Pentagon that regards it similar to a continent. Like we have the Africa Command, we have the Asia Command, we have the South American Command, we have the Internet Command. That's how they treat it now. And uh, the National Security Agency, the NSA, basically is building the cloud of all clouds, uh, meaning they're going to collect material on everyone and everything and know everything about us so they can protect us from terrorists. And uh, they work closely with these private firms, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, uh, to collect and share data, and it's very lucrative for both of them. They work closely with AT&T and Verizon and Comcast, the cartel. Uh, they're all in cahoots together, collecting all this data, working for each other's interest. It is not a very pretty picture, and it's all done basically uh, with virtually no public awareness, no public involvement, but corrupt policymaking. Uh, this is what's driving what's going on online right now, and I try to talk about it in the book.
1: In, in in digital, disconnect there, chapter seven. You t- you kind of outlined some ideas for policy, and I'm not going to go through them all, um, all the bullet points. But the one I did want to ask about was was because it's in the news. It seems every year or so, the idea of net neutrality, and it was SOPA, and it was PIPA, and um, I remember Wikipedia went dark, and Boing Boing went dark, and support, and others were not in support. Um, If you would talk a little bit about the idea of net neutrality and and where you see this fight going, I forget the name of the bill that was just introduced again.
0: Um, well, net net neutrality is uh, something that Free Press has been working on and leading the fight on for the better part of eight years now. And this is the idea that once we have this cartel that has monopoly power over internet access, that really is just due to corrupt policy making, there's nothing that requires it. Uh, but but basically, you you only have one choice for broadband, maybe two if you're lucky. If you basically have one choice, there's not much competition, that uh, these companies have tremendous incentive to privatize the internet, close down the networks. Since there's no competition, you can't go to someone else and get the same service, uh, but have access to all the websites. Uh, you've got they, They're going to be able to privatize it. And what we have now in the United States is the cell phone companies basically have privatized networks. They don't have to offer all services, whereas the wireline do. And so we still have net neutrality there. Uh this is a huge fight. It only exists because the cartel has so much power and they want to abuse so badly, which is why they hate net neutrality. They don't want to honor all websites as equal. They want the ability to say some websites and some services come through. If they pay, a, pay us off, we can get a take in it. And others that won't pay us off don't, like cable TV systems. Uh, that's why it's such a huge fight. Net neutrality also has political implications. It basically says the cartel, uh, these four, three, four, or five companies, can determine what voices have access to other voices and what don't. That's way too much unaccountable power, even for the most benevolent institutions, let alone companies that have such deplorable track records uh, for civil liberties as, as the cartel companies like ATT, Verizon, and Comcast. So that's that fight. It's a crucial fight. Now, I want to tell you the other fights you mentioned, like SOPA, is a different fight altogether. And it's, uh, uh, that's the Stop Online uh, Piracy Act, and that deals with copyright. And copyright, I mentioned historically, it's important. Well, it has returned as a huge issue online because uh, traditional media, the Internet sort of raises exponentially the whole problem of media in the first place, which is that, you know, ideas aren't material things. And so a million people can watch the same TV show and it doesn't distract from my ability to enjoy the show or watch, go to the same website, a million people try to eat the same hamburger, we don't, it'd be some real problems. Not a million people would enjoy the same hamburger. And the Internet basically makes the traditional media system of commercial media, buy a product, sell it, and then put walls around it so one else can use it, far more hard, difficult to enforce, and far more unrealistic. It begs for a much more rational way to say, how can we support culture to get it out there without having to have a police force online constantly clocking people? And the barrier to having that sort of discussion about how we can fund artists and writers and filmmakers and musicians uh, and then make the material accessible to everyone inexpensively, the barrier that comes from these companies, these huge media conglomerates that really their whole business model is based on copyright. So they've spent the better part of 15 years doing everything in their power to increase the length of copyright, the severity of copyright penalties uh, for what they call violations. We've eliminated many of the traditional understandings of what the public domain is, of what fair use is. Uh, the burden is on the user uh, to establish that it's not theft, rather you know the rather than the burden being on someone else to prove that it is theft. Uh, it's a very bad situation. It's made the media conglomerates major proponents of an internet that's very easy to track people by the government, very easy to track people with a commercial interest, so they can track down people who might be using their stuff. So they become huge allies, in fact, of, of turning the internet into surveillance institution rather than an uncensored institution, Uh, and that's a huge fight, and I think people understand that. That's a fight we have to win, but it leads to a broader question, as does the whole issue of journalism. As a society, we've got to come up with policies to bankroll people to do this sort of stuff so they can make a living doing music, uh, make a living doing art, doing journalism, and we have institutions to do this well that are accountable. Uh, but at the same time, we we can't use these antiquated policies like copyright, which are just strangling the Internet and, and really doing nothing of value except backing, beefing up the bottom lines of these media conglomerates that are largely dinosaurs that do nothing of value otherwise.
1: Reading Digital Disconnect and your previous work as well, Corporate Media and the Threat to Democracy and Death and Life, et cetera, et cetera, I, I read these and, and I'm so impressed by the work that goes into it and and fired up. You know, I, I was a journalist for 10, fifteen years, so I get fired up and, and all this stuff. Um, but I also find that times it's depressing in in some ways, and i personally and I'm wondering how you feel what what is your outlook on 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 uh, um, the internet now and the government's role and the corporate interest? Do you have any optimism? I, I knew you, you have some great points in terms of you know some policy suggestions and ideas. But how do you personally feel about the, the outlook of digital communication in this country?
0: Well, let's start with your first point, which is, you know, the book, sometimes the stuff's depressing. I, I hear that periodically, and I think it's such a bizarre, um, bizarre point to me in a way, because um, you know, if you go and you get a diagnosis for your health, and let's say you've got a, a serious problem that needs to be addressed, and the doctor says, boy, that's going to bring you down. I'm not going to tell you about that. Instead, I'm going to say, you know, you're doing okay and that this, everything's going to be fine. You'll probably walk out of there and feel good for a while. Then you're going to get really sick or die and probably say, gee, I wish the doctor had told me the truth uh, and I could be alive still. Or your family would say that. And that's what a scholar, our job is to tell the truth and let the chips fall over the middle. Our, our job is not to... Basically, say what's going to make people feel good about themselves, you know. So, they'll, gee whiz, things are great. Thanks, Professor, for letting me know how wonderful everything is. <laughs> it seemed that way, but now I feel really good. You know, we're not self-help promoters. We're not hucksters. We're, our job is to just do our best to telling the truth, using the evidence you see, and outlining crucial problems society's got to address. I mean, if we don't do it, no one's set up to do it but us. That's our role. And so my feeling is because the biblical saying, you know, the truth will set you free. Until you know what, have a good diagnosis, you can't really solve the problem. And, that, and so we, our, we have to get a good diagnosis, and then we come up with solutions, and we want to see what the cause of the problem is. And having said that, I'm spectacularly optimistic. I mean, I don't, I've never seen people say, well, just tell me how great everything is, and then I'm going to walk around in a cloud while well, things suck. Um, you know, I don't know what that whose favor that is, what sort of world that is to live in. And I, I'm a spectacularly optimistic person, and the reason I'm optimistic is that I know in every single issue we've talked about in this interview, Dave, and every issue I write about in the book, the significant majority of Americans, even with the little information they have, are on my side on every issue. And when they, the more information they get, the more they're on my side. There's not a there's not like an outpouring of people in America that say, gee, was, I really love the idea that there's this cartel that's gouging me on the internet. I really love the idea that there's this onerous copyright. I really love the idea that corporations know everything I do. I have no idea what it is, and they're spying on me. They know more about me than my family members know about me. No one likes that stuff. No one wants that. And to the extent they are aware of it, they want to change it. They're concerned about it. And that's the optimism. I would be depressed only. If I thought I outlined all this stuff in the mirror, people said, no, we don't care. We like having huge monopolies that run everything. We like having social programs gutted. We don't really need Social Security or health care. We like paying through our teeth and being bombarded with ads that are invasive. If people said that, I thought that was the consensus, even with what I wrote, then I'd be depressed. But we aren't even close to that. I'm optimistic.
1: Great. So digital disconnect, it's done. It's out. It's making the rounds. What's next for you?
0: Well, it would have a, it's been a sort of productive year. A bunch of projects that I've been working on have come into uh, uh, completion almost simultaneously. So I have another book that I literally sent off the last change to uh, yesterday morning uh, that I'm writing with my friend John Nichols, who I wrote Death and Life of American Journalism with. It's coming out in June with Nation Books, and it's called Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And it basically talks about what's happened to elect- the election system in America with the rise of big money and the crucial role crappy journalism and declining journalism uh, play in the media companies that benefit by these absurd TV ads play uh, in, in the whole process. And part of that book, in fact, I think the most, interesting, the most original chapter by far is a long discussion of how digital elections and digital campaigns are evolving, taking on taking up virtually all the issues that I talk about uh, in Digital Disconnect, but then applying them simply to the 2012 election and what took place with Obama and Romney.
1: The book is Digital Disconnect, How Capitalism is Turning the Internet Against Democracy, and the author is Bob McChesney. And Bob, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: My pleasure, Jay. Let's do it for the next book, too.
1: Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to New
1: Books and Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Digital Disconnect, written by Robert McChesney at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.